Lord, right now we put ourselves in a, in a certain posture. You know, we bow our heads. That bowing is a sign of your, your great holiness. And our natural response to that is to humble ourselves, to come to you in reverence and awe. And Lord, that's what we're here to do today. You are, Lord, today as we look in the earliest chapters of the Bible, we're going to see just how ancient you are. So, Lord, I pray that, you know, a lot of these things that Reuben's been leading us in and a lot of the words of these songs, Lord, help them come to life now as we look into your word. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. And all right, okay, so before you have a seat, I want you to think about this is, a, this is a big church. In a smaller church, sometimes it can be easier to kind of say hi and meet other people. So if we just kind of think about each one of our sections like a little subdivision of a neighborhood, why don't you reach out and say hi, maybe meet a new chair neighbor that you got, okay? Take a minute and greet each other. It was, it was so neat. This last week I got a text message with a picture of four people that are real, um, sp have become special to me and are actually uh, kind of becoming um, special to our church. Um, it was about 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor outside Chicago, and um, I, was, I was part of a church that was very, very passionate about missions, about the call that Jesus gave to his disciples to say, get out in the whole world and all of the nations, get out there. And tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, like our congregation, our church took that real serious. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, almost every year, hundreds of people from the church would, you know, get their passports together, get on planes, and uh, go meet and serve and be involved in, you know, extending the Great Commission through these missionaries that we had around the world. Um, and uh, I, I remember I got on a plane. I was the youth pastor, and so we were going to be forming this partnership between the high school students of Costa Rica and the high school students of the Chicagoland area. And so I got on a plane, we took about uh, 15 of our high school students down there. They moved into the, they stayed in the homes of students of a youth group of the, of the church down in Costa Rica. The first couple nights they said it was really hard because we could hardly communicate with each other. Um, but they said the funny thing was, after just a couple days, it doesn't take you long, you figure out a way to talk about the important stuff together, even if you don't share the same words or the same food. I remember the first morning I got up to take a shower and I was wondering how I was going to get hot water and I saw that there was an electric heater that was attached to the shower head with electric cords running right by the faucet. <laughs> and I said, what is that thing called? And they said, that's called the Widowmaker. Okay, <laughs> um, so I mean, o over that missions trip, I formed a real strong partnership with a pastor in Costa Rica. His name was Luis, and his wife's name is Marcia. And um, actually, he has now ex responded to God's call to move to Mexico and to plant a brand new church in the capital city of one of the states in Mexico called Merida. And I got a picture this week of Luis and Marcia, these 10-year-old friends of mine who I've been reconnecting with. And uh, they're in the Middle East, they're in Turkey right now, retracing the steps of the Apostle Paul with two other missionaries who are part of kind of the same missions organization and missions family, um, Ben and Christy Williams from the Ukraine. And so I got a picture of the four of them together. And uh, man, I just, I tell you what, it was inspiring to me to think about how um, today, we're, you know, we're going to be looking at Abraham. And when God called Abraham, he didn't, he didn't know. I mean, Reuben said that. He didn't know where he was going. But when God called him to do it, he knew that there's, you know, <laughs> he could choose to remain comfortable without God's blessing or put himself at risk with God's blessing. One of those options sounded like the safe one to him. Which one sounds like the safe one to you? And I, I just was thinking about, I mean, Ben and Christy have been in Ukraine over a year now. You know how many times I'm sure other people have said, what are you doing? Are you nuts? You know, come home. And what, I mean, I've, we've had interactions with them quite a few times. They said, the Lord called us here. And when he calls us to come home, then we will. And until then, we'll assume that he has good work 
here for us to do. And so um, I wanted to actually, uh, our, they sent us a little video to give us an update. And man, I, I just, I wanted to encourage you with the work that they're doing in Ukraine that you financially support. So we have a share in all that God's doing across the globe. Uh, so pay attention, Ben and Christy Williams, this is an update uh, from their work in the Ukraine. Hello friends, we are Ben and Christy Williams. We serve with Josiah Venture here in Ukraine and it's been over a year of war and we just wanna give you an update about what God's doing here. Our team has partnered with local churches to complete over 150 different projects in the last few months. So we just wanna show you some pictures and share what God's doing. 14 youth ministry teams are studying at a program we lead at the seminary. We're mentoring them throughout the year. Fusion concerts are happening, even in Kharkiv, despite shelling and missile attacks. More than 100 girls from different Ukraine regions visited our girls' ministry conference in December. Our schools team organized emotional intelligence courses for over 150 teachers from the Lviv area. Our partnership with the M4 church planting program continues. Four team teams right now are getting ready to plant new churches. We've been able to do 16 trauma retreats led by our staff for the vitality of leaders as it helps leaders work through their trauma. JV's practical help to Ukraine is ongoing. The 43rd truck left for Southern Ukraine just recently. We are proud of our partner churches. For example, one church, Grapevine Church, is helping displaced Ukrainians in the Lviv dormitory. And Hosanna Church serves women through crisis pregnancy centers. Philadelphia Church has started a sports ministry and an IT outreach group for internally displaced people. We believe that we're called to train and equip young leaders through the local church to fulfill Christ's commission, even during war. And we're grateful to you and to all of our partners for helping us in such a way that really brings hope to Ukrainian people in their hardest times. Thank you. Man, I mean, it's, isn't that so inspiring? Why don't we take a minute right now, let's lift them up in prayer. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, we lift up Ben and Christy and the Philadelphia Church in the Ukraine. Lord, and Lord, all the different ministries that are going out that are bringing the, the life-changing, hope-filled news of salvation only in Jesus Christ to people. God, we know that your sovereign hand, you steer the events of world history towards a future direction that is unfolding to us, but not to you. It is all going according to plan, and that is hard for us to understand. And yet in the middle of this, we're not responsible for running the whole world. We leave that job up to you. Your hands are bigger, your eyes are clearer. You're... We trust you with that. Lord, help us to be satisfied to let you run the world and to embrace with real vigor, intensity, and faith the job that you have given to us, that Ben and Christy have responded to in any and every situation, in the situation that they're in right now, to say the message of Jesus Christ going out, bringing the hope of the world to people in this hopeless situation is with this light there. I pray that you would strengthen them and their family. I pray that you would bless them. And I pray as a church, would you do a work in our hearts and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would you give us more and more love for them and the work that they're doing and the Christians that are there God, show us our part to play in that, and I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Okay, so we're going to pick up, uh, we're going to be looking at, the, we're going to continue to look at the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 13, so I'm going to ask you to take out your copy of God's Word and uh, stand to our feet as we honor the reading of God's Word. So chapter 13, verse 1. So, Abram, now many of you know him as Abraham. We've not yet reached the point of the story where God glorifies his name by extending it. It gets more letters, but it also gets more meaning. We're not there yet. But for now, his name is Abram. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, 
to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, over these next few moments, would you, we're here and we're just, we just heard your word. And Lord, we're hungry to know what it means, what it means and what it tells us to do. I pray by a work of your spirit that we can't do on our own. Lord, would you... Um, would you open up our minds to understand it? And we know from your word that the reason our minds are closed to understanding your word is not ignorance. It's that we love other things. So help us with that today. God, in our, give us in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, pour out a love for you. Make it flood our hearts so that when at a heart level we want you more than anything else, then your Bible comes to life as truth to us and we learn. Lord, please do that for us this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, one of the things that's been wonderful for me as I've, you know, gone through uh, these chapters and as I've been looking at the life of Abraham, it, the life of Abraham has jumped off these pages to me in a fresh way. I hope maybe some of that has been happening to you. You know, because I think, you know, for a lot of us, who grew up in church in the way that I did and went to summer camp and vacation Bible school. There's lots of these characters that I can have a sense of, well, I, I know these guys. I remember the flannel graph stories. I mean, I remember this. And I just want to, you know, just to kind of help us calibrate this. When chapter 13 said that Abram built an altar, or he went to the altar at Bethel, and he called upon the name of the Lord, I want you to imagine in your mind, what did that look like? Now, we're only going to have to wonder about this a little bit longer because have you seen the news? One of these, the Christian movie production companies is going to be rolling out a movie about the life of Abraham. Have you seen this? So, you know, we're going to get another kind of vivid picture of what this looks like. I'm interested to see what they said. Now, at this, when Abram called on the name of the Lord at Bethel, how many people were part of Abram's tribe at this point? In his, you know, in his household, the people who were traveling with him. Last week we talked about this. In just a couple chapters, he's going to go to war, and he's going to be able to muster 318 trained fighting men. And so, if, you know, knowing what we knew about the culture at that time, that means Abram's a, Abram is a small country. It's around, you know, three to 5,000 people would be traveling with him. So when Abram went out to Bethel and called upon the name of the Lord, don't you think Sarah went with him? Don't you think Lot was there? And don't you think all the people that were part of his household were there? When Abram got up to call upon the name of the Lord, 
Um, let's see, I'm guessing right, I'm gonna guess right now. I think there's probably about six, 700 people in here right now. When Abram got together and called upon the name of the Lord at Bethel, that means there would have been about four times the amount of people at Abram's worship service than is in this room right now. Is that the way you pictured it when Abram was calling on the name of the Lord? Or did you see a guy in a bathrobe with a wrapping around his head, one guy at a kind of primitive altar with a few sheep running around? See, one of the things that we can do uh, in the Bible, and I think a lot of this is because of the culture that we've grown up in, as we look back in history, we can look down our noses at the people of history at being very simple and not nearly as modern and as wonderful as we are. And yet, Abram is a person that the Bible continues to point to as an example to us. How many times does this name come up in the New Testament? In Hebrews, multiple verses. And he was a man who walked by incredible faith. And then the writer of Hebrews, who I think is the Apostle Paul, he goes on in chapter 12 and says, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And what he's telling us is that we ought to think about their lives and the way that we live them. We ought to think about them as great witnesses, people who walk the same line of faith that we do, the same challenge that we, that we face, except their course has come to an end. And from the heavens and in the scriptures, their lives are still examples for us to look at. I mean, not to worship. We don't worship our ancestors. But we're foolish if we don't look back at their lives and really look at who, who were they and how did they live and how did God make them great and what kind of character do they have? And those are our people. And so chapter 13 picks up that Abraham comes out of, sorry, Abram comes out of Egypt and he comes out of Egypt rich. Did you hear that? He was rich in livestock, in silver and gold. He was rich. Did you hear that he and uh, that Abram and Lot were so rich that the land could not support their overabundance of wealth? Did you pick that up? And how did he get this? I mean, he took some of his riches and wealth all the way from Ur the Chaldees where he originally was called out because more than likely he was part of the nobility of his home country. He put all of that wealth and all of that, all those possessions at great risk when he followed God's call. And instead of losing it, he kept gaining it, although the situations in which he gained it in would be the kind that nobody would choose. Last week we talked about his troublesome time in the land of Egypt and just how big of a risk it was for him to take his gorgeous 75-year-old wife to Egypt because he knew that they were going to just fall head over heels for her, right? And at the end of the last chapter, God, God had made a promise in the previous chapters that every person who blesses Abraham would experience a blessing for doing so, and every person who cursed Abram would be cursed by God. And Pharaoh in Egypt attempted to be a curse to him by stealing and taking his wife and adding Sarai to his harem. And God, according to his word, he made a promise, if somebody curses you, I will curse them. And he struck Pharaoh and his whole household. And so Abram, in a time of trial, came out of Egypt, except out of that time of trial, did he come out having lost something or gained something? He came out with even greater wealth than he went in with. And this can be kind of a struggling thing for us as Christians, because we also know that the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so there are many people who look at wealth and people who have great wealth and say, oh man, they, they must be sinning. But it's not the presence of wealth that's a great problem or the presence of possessions that's a great problem. And this is what the Bible teaches us over and over again. And a lesson that for us as people we have the hardest time with and that is, the Bible tells us that it is the human heart that is deceptive above all things. This is why Scripture tells us it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not the money, it's what's in your heart. And this message is the exact opposite message that we hear in our culture, that the Bible cuts exactly the opposite direction. The sin is never in the stuff. It's not your phone. Your phone can't sin, it's an inanimate object. Can you sin with your phone? The internet. And in one man, in Abram, in Abram what we find is that 
Possessions keep getting added to him more and more. He comes to possess more and more. And this chapter tells us the reason why. Abram has a kind of wealth that keeps gaining possessions. And that wealth is that he has an organizing principle. He's got something that all that wealth is for. So that he never makes a decision in any one of his situations. He's never making a decision to protect his wealth or to use his wealth for only his, his selfish gain. What we have from Abram is a stabilizing factor that happened for him. And that is he was called by God. This is why when Abram comes out of Bethel with more wealth and more possessions than he went into it, what's the first thing that he does? The first thing he does is he goes back to Bethel. And what happened to him at Bethel? What happened to Bethel in the previous chapter is the glory cloud presence of God came and met with him. He had a personal encounter with God. He knew God. And this personal encounter with him, the reason why he set up an altar there at that site was not just because that's a place that he decided he wanted to meet with God. The name Bethel means house of God. The reason why he built an altar in that place is because God met him there. And the reason he was even in that place is because God had called him. And so we get contrasted right here in this chapter. There's a big difference between Abram and Lot. Abram has a call of God. He has a devotion to God. He has a purpose. There is a reason why he is walking through the land of Canaan, and that is because God has made a promise to him and God has called him to it. And that's the thing that he proves to be devoted to over and over again. This is why the book of Hebrews holds him up and says, he's a hero of the faith. And Lot's not the same. In verse 5, let's pick it up. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So Lot has material possessions. And those material possessions are of great size. Likely not as much as Abram's but of a great size. There's so much there that the two of them can't dwell in the same land together because they're so wealthy. And the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great. Verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And what uh, Genesis chapter uh, 13 is telling us, there's a great difference between Abram and Lot. There is some similarities. They both have a lot of livestock. They both have herdsmen. So they've got servants. They're, they both are leaders of great households. Lot is um, Abram's nephew. So, you know, his household is not as great. One of the things that Lot doesn't recognize as a young man is that he's, he, his household has been increased and he's greatly been blessed. Because of his relationship to Abram, remember God made a promise, all those who bless you, I will bless. Lot's blessing was partly because it was the blessing of his father's brother. And so even though he had lots of possession, he was not like Abram because he did not have the same character that Abram had. Abram had the internal character, a call of God, a desire for holiness, a heart that was filled with faith, and that made him a trusted and safe person to pour out more wealth. But Lot was not the same. And I got to tell you, when, you, when I tell you that, and I'm not telling you, Genesis is telling you, that Lot stood up there and he looked at all the land, and the land that looked most attracted to him was the land that was around the city of Sodom. And we don't have to guess about what that was like. And not only did he, did he stand up at that high place and said, I want, that's, where, I, that's where I want to be over there. We know that first he's, he goes there, then he moves as far as living close to Sodom. And then we know that in a few chapters, when, when the Lord and two angels come to visit Sodom, Lot's not living on the outskirts, he's in the city. He's not just in the city, he's in the gate welcoming them, which means he's in a leadership position in the city of Sodom. If I was going to ask you the moral condition of Lot, what would you guess? Lot makes a terrible choice. 
And this terrible choice is followed by more and more terrible choices. Do you know that the, at the end of Lot's life, we, we don't hear how he died, but the Bible does tell us that there's a final place that he's living. He's living down in a cave because he's afraid of the people that are around him. Chapter 12, or sorry, chapter 13 paints a real different picture about Abram's life of faith and Lot's life. We know that Lot has daughters there in the city of Sodom. We know that those daughters married husbands. And we know that when the angels gave a warning to Abram, said, go tell Lot to get out. And he does. Lot goes to try to get all of his family out, but they all won't leave. His daughters leave with him. But his wife doesn't make it. And Abram's walking a hard life. Life with a lot of responsibility. A life where he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know the outcome. He's got a promise to hold on to. And man, Lot looks down on that. He looks down there. Now it says that that land, when he looked down there, it reminded him of something. It reminded him of the garden of God. Don't you remember the garden of God was watered by, there was four rivers that flew out. There was, there was ample water that led to a kind of fertility that was there. And when Lot looked down at that, he said, oh, that, that, that looks like the garden. But was it? It said it was like the garden. It said it was like the Nile. And that, that could mean a couple things. It could mean that the, the Jordan River, as it headed down to that area around by Sodom, now where the Dead Sea is, a very salty body of water, how did all that salt get there? We'll talk about that in a minute. He looked down there, and it was either like a, like a delta, you know, where the river went down and it was a rich and fertile land, or this was the first kind of agricultural engineering project that we hear about in the Bible, where such a river, there was man-made canals that made that whole land fertile and stable and secure. And that is not, this fact right here is, is given to us for a purpose. It tells us. Um, it tells us that wealth could do two things. Wealth can be a blessing. Material possessions and wealth can be a great blessing to the person who worships God and keeps God central. And, and wealth and possessions can be a curse. Because what happened to Sodom? I mean, a whole people living on, on God's green earth in one of the most fertile parts of the earth. And because of their safety, because of the security, because of the wealth, because of all the possessions, did they move towards God or away from God? Did they walk in holiness? You know, Lord, look at you've blessed us with all these things. We recognize that this all comes from your hand. How many times have you seen somebody who came into possession of incredible wealth and it ruined their lives? Isn't there a whole TV show about this that traces lottery winners? People who don't necessarily have the competence or the character to deal with lots of power or lots of wealth like that, and then instantly they get it. And what does it do? I mean, it just it destroys their lives. And we're told about the people of Sodom. We're told about the men of Sodom in verse 13. They were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Hebrew tells us it was exceeding sin against the Lord. And the Bible does, con it keeps this pattern all through. And we know what the sin of Sodom is. And we know that the sin of homosexuality, which is what the sin of Sodom was, we know that that sin is an exceeding sin because there's a lot of moral compromises that get made along the way to get to that point. This is one of the reasons why Romans tells us real clearly that that kind of sin is evidence that God has given people over 
and allowed their own desires to run unrestrained, exceeding sin. For a people and a city and a civilization that had experienced such a great outpouring of wealth. I know it's so hard because the Bible's written so long ago about people, it could be hard to figure out how could this possibly relate to our times. You know, it could be hard to make that connection. And Lot wanted to live down there. Now we can tell by the way that this is told that Lot caused the problem. Abram is the one who goes to him and says, come on, we don't, let's not have strife between us. There was strife between the two of them and there was strife between Lot's herdsmen and, and Abram's. And he says, look, look at all this land. And we, you know, we know from Second Peter that Lot's a Christian, he'll be in heaven. Bible tells us that he had a righteous soul and that even though he was in Sodom, he was vexed that seeing the sin that was going on in the city was troublesome to him, but he wanted to be close to it. And after he left, we get a sense from these verses that that was a hard experience for Abram. Because the Lord comes and visits him again. Look at verse 14. So after a lot separates and goes down there, verse 14, the, the Lord appears to him again. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Now, if you've been with us for these past few weeks of Genesis, one of the things that I've been trying to do is trying to point out the sim- in the symbol world of the Bible, um, as the Bible unfolds chapter by chapter, we start to understand what certain words mean, what they symbolize. And I think we've seen up to this point multiple times that the, um, that seeing something or lifting up your eyes or the Lord coming down and seeing something, the, the seeing always means judgment. It means that, that your, eyes, your eyes are decision makers for you. And, and we know that this is true. Our eyes are decision makers to us because no matter what, every person is... Um, Every person is using their eyes to look at something and evaluate something. Is that something desirable? Is that something to move towards? Or is that something to move away from? Our eyes are involved in the decisions that we make. Some things look attractive to us and some things look repulsive to us. And we move towards the things that are attractive to us and away from the things that are repulsive to us. This is one of the reasons why Jonathan Edwards spent so much time talking about how without human heart change, Without a, a deep work of God that changes what looks, uh, that changes our desires, we're trapped and stuck. We're stuck only ever being able to look at things based on our own hearts, which are deceptive, and our hearts want things that we, that we should not want, but we do want them, and our eyes are always going to make a choice based on what's most attractive to us. This is why becoming a Christian is not just an intellectual decision that people make. Becoming a Christian requires a work of God to, to come into your heart and to change your desires. So that what happens is something that you look at that you used to love. I used to love to do that. And now you look at the very same thing with the same eyes in your head, but your heart has changed and you look at that and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And if you talk to a, to a person who has become a Christian, that is many times the, the story that you hear. My, a work of God doesn't just change what you see, it changes your desires. That's why Lot, when he looked up there and he looked down at the city of Sodom, it was true that there was something very desirable about that to him. The reason he went that way was because he wanted to. And so God comes and encouraged Abram, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes from the place that you are. I'm in verse 14. And look, look northward, look southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Let me ask you a question. How much of that land did Abraham end up coming to own and have possession of? How much of it? Almost none of it. And God told him, walk around. I mean, he goes on, verse 17, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abram, I want you to to look at it, 
and then I want you to go walk through it. And while you're looking at it and walking through it, I'm not going to give any of it to you yet, but I want you to walk through it. Only a little plot of land that Abraham did buy and have possession of is a place that he would bury his wife, Sarai. Why? In the New Testament, it makes a big deal about what this was like for Abram. To have something promised to him. Something that he really wanted promised to him. And God wanted him to think about what was promised to him. And God wanted him to walk around. And he wanted, to, he wanted him to see it. He wanted him to take a mouth-watering tour of all the things that he was going to give to him. And enjoy the future promise in the present moment. Knowing it's not for you now. All this is, all this is going to be yours. Not yet. Walk around all this and look at all these people that are living. That, they're living in your town. It's going to be yours. It's not yet, but it's going to be. And then in verse 18, it says, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. Okay, now let me ask the question. If you, if you were going to be involved in the production crew at this movie that's going to come out about Abraham, and they talk about Abraham's tent, you know, he lived in these tents all the time. How, what, you know, would you go to L.L. Bean and get you one of these little kind of camping tents, maybe one that had two or three rooms in it, so that he could kind of pitch it up and down pretty quickly? Is that, is that what you imagine? Um, how, many, how many people needed to have shelter when Abraham was going to pitch his tent. Three to five thousand people. It's a, it's a tent city. And we know that it would be a complicated tent because in, he would live in one of those tents for 75 years. This tent that he pitched in Hebron, Hebron was the place that he lived in the longest. Now, when we think of the tent, we think the most, you know, the, we, I don't know, maybe we imagine that, um, that Abraham was like the first outdoorsman and that he just kind of loved camping and backpacking and kind of pitching his tent here and pitching his tent there. And he and Sarai were kind of like on a nature journey, like in Yosemite, and that's kind of how we love to live. But that's not really what the, what the Bible is telling us. What the Bible is telling us is that this tent city that, that he had— um, That it was like a sketch of what his future was going to be like. Because if you, I mean, if you just turn to the next chapter in Exodus, Moses puts up a tent house for God. And that tent is not like a tent that you and I camp in. There's poles, very thick embroidered curtains, boards that get hung to separate the many, many rooms that there were. There were sockets in the ground. I mean, when this tent got set up, it could stay for a long time. But the point of the tent is that it was temporary. It could be folded up and moved. It was beautiful in its own way. But Abram wasn't... Abram was blessed in many ways. But he didn't want to live in a tent city. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the whole time that he was living in that tent city, he was looking forward to another city. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we are in the same spot as Abraham, you and I. Uh, two weeks ago, in the middle of the week, our, we opened up our church building. Uh, some of you might have heard about it. Um, 
Boy, a beloved Medford uh, police officer died in the line of duty. And uh, the memorial service was here. Um, and they brought, they brought him out in his coffin. And he was, I mean, he was right there. And if the Lord doesn't return beforehand, that same thing's gonna happen to all of us. And Paul in Corinthians uses a way of talking about that. And one of the things that he says is um, that thing that you live in right there that you call your body. God looks at that like a tent. It's a, it's a little sketch of what it's going to be like eternally. And one day, they're going to fold you up. Lovingly, Sadly, respectfully. But that ain't going to be the end for you. All of life boils down to this one thing. What's next? Where will you be when they're folding your tent up? Where will you be? The Bible tells you that if you have saving faith to be absent from the body, to be present to the Lord. So what are we, what are we doing here now? What are you doing here now? I'm one of what Abram was. That's what me and you were doing. If you're if you're a true Christian in here, me and you are doing exactly what Abram was doing. And the New Testament talks about this over and over again. We are on a sojourn. We are walking around eastward, westward, northward, southward over an entire planet, country after country, beach after beach, mountaintop after mountaintop, and it's not ours. Yet. Didn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, you're going to inherit the earth. Didn't he say that? It's not yours now, but it's going to be. And then didn't Jesus get his disciples together at the very end? And said, you go into all the earth. Go into all of it. Fan out, spread out, eastward, northward, southward. What did I leave out? Westward. Oh, and go make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to preserve everything I commanded you. And guess what? I'm going with you everywhere. And I mean the, the plain teaching of the Bible. That Christians look forward to that. Um, okay. Because like when you're 30, living in your tent seems awesome because your tent's still fresh and clean. All the sticks still work. The zippers are still fine. You're like, this tent is awesome. You talk to somebody who's 65, 70, and when the Bible, when sec, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we groan in this tent because it's wearing out. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? 
What's going to happen when they fold it up? Was Jesus lying? When he said, you're going to inherit the earth, and when Jesus said in his word that the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the water covers the sea. John in the Revelation, when he said there's a new capital city called Jerusalem, it's going to come out of heaven, it's going to come right here, and it's going to be incredible. And when Paul said, you're going to rise up in something, it's all the people who saw you in your tent form are going to be like, oh yeah, I kind of recognize that shape. You, yeah, you remind me of that tent, but oh my gosh, the way, a, the way a tent city was to the golden city of Jerusalem is the way that for every Christian, your tent life now is going to be to the heavenized version of you that will live on for eternity with God. Now, that's either true or it's not. And if it is, and I believe that it is, then lift up your eyes. And look northward, southward, eastward, westward. And let your mouth water at the promise of what God has. But that's only true for one kind of person in here. The person who's come to Christ. He's the only person Oh man, didn't he have a hard life in that tent of his? Didn't he groan in it? Didn't he cry out in it? Didn't they fold it up? And then three days later, what happened? What's that tent like now? He's, he's the only one we've seen. Fold that tent up and come back in resurrection power. When we get ready to come into Easter, that's what we're celebrating, the facts of what that means. And the only person who that's going to happen to is the person who looks at Jesus Christ's life, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and says, I believe. Is that you? There's only one way to please God, and that is in faith. Do you believe the true message of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and how it applies to you? If, it, if, it, if you do, man, my prayer for you, lift up your eyes. Would you stand? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Abraham. What an, Lord, what an amazing thing you did in his life. I'm so thankful that it's recorded here in the Word. So thankful for his character. I'm so thankful for his faith. I'm so thankful for the account of the fact that you met him, Lord. I, and I pray that, you, Lord, would you, for every one of us that you've gifted, the, that you've given faith to, help us to grab hold of it and really anchor ourselves to look at our future, the life that we have, what will happen to us when our tent is folded up and we'll see you face to face and for us to be mouth wateringly excited about what you have for us in this life. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. He's working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. song right there, huh? Um, has, he ever, has he ever not been faithful to you? Then how do we respond to that? Man, faith. I believe. I trust in him. Yes, I will. Man, as we go out this week, let's remind ourselves. Let, let the faith of Abraham, the confident, trusting, worshipful walk that he had, hear God's call and go, that is where I'm going. We're going to have a prayer team up here. If I was talking about being born again, coming into saving faith in Christ. If you've got questions about what it means to come into a new relationship to God through Christ, we're going to have a prayer team down here. And also, if there's some way that life in this tent is you're groaning and you need someone to encourage you and pray with you, we're going to have a prayer team right down here. Everybody else, have a great week.